Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Dealing with pests can be a pain, but relax. Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. If your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. Noel is not with us today. Noel the Bagman Brown is indeed on adventures. They call me Ben. We are joined, as always, with our super producer, Paul, Mission Control, Deccant, a.k.a. the Coordinator. Most importantly, you are you, you are here, and that makes this stuff they don't want you to know. Matt, off air, uh, you and Paul and I have been talking about... uh, some of our favorite things, heist, right? Yeah, heist <laughs> movies, heist, uh, heist and fiction. I think are one of my favorite things. Mm-hmm. Not in reality, right? It's there's this cool team up moment in a lot of heist films, right? And uh, we we spoke about which roles we would ideally or realistically play in a heist, and and. Paul, I loved uh, I loved when Paul immediately replied, well, I guess I would be the coordinator in a heist. And if you go on places like TV Tropes, you will see the various categories, the common positions and roles in a lot of heist. 
Paul, I have to be honest. I feel like maybe you chose the coordinator just because it also uh, the category also says the coordinator functions as mission control. Yeah, he he found that and he went, "That's it. That's what I'm doing." He read the whole article. And Matt, you had some interesting choices. You had two that that spoke to you. Yeah, I, I'm mostly thinking about it in context of this show. So I I would go with the partner in crime. So not the mastermind because I think we all know who the mastermind would be, especially in the context of our crew and show. Uh, <clears throat> ben, but I would be the partner in crime. I would be the person who is second in command, who assists uh, and um, may be the only one, this is a quote, may be the only one besides the mastermind who actually knows what's going on. You know, that's that's flattering uh, to to imply that mastermind position. Uh, I, I, I don't know, man. I, I always... I always thought I would uh, I would function as a face, at least in my past experience. I tend to do oh, the I face you. work a lot, but uh, but what we found was that we constructed the four of us uh, a, a fairly solid, again, fictional heist crew, and today we're we're looking at heist. You know, heist, when you think about it, they're conspiracies. People are conspiring to do something nefarious. Yeah, certainly. And a lot of the examples we're going to get to today involve inside jobs, of mm-hmm. all things, within that conspiracy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> loaded term. Loaded term there. But who does not love a good heist film? You know, the the formula is pretty solid at this point. A team of specialists with some dubious gifts and specializations and no small amount of internal tension band together for, I don't know, sometimes it's the big one, capital B, capital O. Sometimes it's one last job before we go straight, you know, or before we retire to some remote destination. There is one rule that always applies to any heist film, no matter which country, culture, or time period it comes from. And that one rule, that one ever-constant, ubiquitous rule is things go wrong. <laughs> yeah, the the perfect plan isn't quite so perfect. But, you know, a lot of these movies are based on actual heists, actual – or at least loosely based on actual heists. Inspired right? by true yeah, events. because all the time – there are people and groups of people conspiring to rob banks and armored cars and mm-hmm. various institutions and jewelry stores and everything. Museums. Yes, they're they are true and they're real. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the big question today is how do they work – how do they function in reality outside of those fictional worlds? Right. How do real heists actually work? Here are the facts and let's call this – why you shouldn't rob a bank. Uh, some of this research comes from an older an older piece that Paul and I did for a show called Brain Stuff. Uh, oh, I remember this. Yeah, which is available on YouTube. Yeah, I was I was nuts on this one. Uh, if we want to get a handle on real life heist, we can look at the numbers, and the numbers may surprise some of us. In 2011. In the United States, let's focus on the U.S. just for this part. In 2011, in the U.S., there were over 5,000 bank robberies. 
5,014 documented ones. Most of these, oddly enough, happened during the day while the bank was open at some point. Yeah, when there, are, when there is a teller or a bank manager or someone on the scene. Mm-hmm. Also, multiple witnesses, people who just came to make a deposit or get a money order and were probably thinking about grabbing Chipotle after. They were not planning for this. Also, the all the data shows that there are two favorite days for bank robbers. Those days are Tuesdays and Fridays. Despite what feature films might have us believe, the majority of robbers are not experts. They are not professional bank robbers. They are rank amateurs. 80% of individual bank robbers have never been convicted of a bank robbery before. It's their first time out. And may probably the, the numbers will show us the first time getting caught. <laughs> yes, 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 that is true. Uh, the criminals also, contrary to what heist and fiction would have us believe, are not teaming up in some super swanky, awesome, Ocean's Eleven, Avengers, Voltron-esque kind of thing. Instead, 80% operate alone, and they also use predictable patterns. They tend to, if they survive the first one, if they escape the first one, they tend to do the same thing, sort of franchise and repeat it. Yeah, or, you know, they're not experienced in how to manage the money and the spoils once they've attained them, mm-hmm. right? And then that will lead them to be to being caught. Yeah, that's a that's a huge <laughs> part of it. Uh, according to the Department of Justice, the FBI's clearance rate for bank robbery is a little under sixty percent of those cleared robberies of the the crimes that are solved. About half of those are solved within thirty days, and people will. Bank robbers, I mean, will get will get caught sometimes not not for anything directly related to the bank robbery. As you said, Matt, they will get caught after the heist using you know uh, bills with sequential serial numbers, mm-hmm. uh, using something that can be traced. Right? There was a yeah. There's this excellent Vice video called Rap Monument. Uh, which has – it's just a cavalcade of mostly amazing MCs. And there's a line in one of these – in one of the verses where they say the bank vaults don't talk but the numbers read. And that is that is directly alluding to the way that serial numbers on bills, especially larger bills, can be traced. So if you if you happen to be sitting on a stack of ill-gotten cash, please be very aware that someone somewhere knows the numbers of those bills and they're kind of waiting for you to use them. Yeah, absolutely. Or f- especially to use them uh, to make a large bulk purchase of an expensive thing, especially if you do it sequentially several times of a large purchase mm-hmm. such as a, oh, I don't know, a Ferrari <laughs> or a mansion mm-hmm. or uh, a Wendy's franchise. A Wendy's franchise? Sure. I mean, that's when you've really made it, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, so we're talking a lot about – how people get caught using the money they've stolen, but we haven't talked about how much money 
professional or lucky robbers actually make. It is surprising. Conspiracy realists, we often hear about millions of dollars, billions of dollars in some cases, disappearing. But life for the average bank robber is pretty hard scrabble and hard won. There was a study by several British economists that examined just the nuts and bolts math of this. So what they found is the average return on a bank heist in the United Kingdom is $19,700 per person per heist. In the U.S., it's way worse. It's only um, a little bit over $4,000 per heist. Yeah, and a lot of that, you know, if you're looking at it on average, you're talking about the loan actors that walk into a bank, hand a piece of paper over that says, empty the register, give me everything you have, I have a gun. Mm-hmm. And then they walk out and that's it. They don't go for the vault. They don't go for any of the big ticket items. They don't go to the security deposit boxes. They just go in, get that money and then leave. So that's definitely swaying numbers there, right? Mm-hmm. And you're also talking about the UK where – uh, weapons are like uh, firearms are much more difficult to come by. So it's this whole other thing. Like if you walk into a bank just wielding a knife or something, it changes the calculus a little bit about mm-hmm. what can go down and what you can get, right? Also, the UK is one of the most closely surveilled areas of the world. I, it, we, did, we did mention this in a previous episode, just the density of cameras. Yeah. Well, the the... the Interesting thing that these people also found, these uh, economists that were looking at the numbers, they found that if you increase the number of people in your crew, you actually can move those numbers a little bit. That's right. Yeah. Every additional member of a heist gang raises the value of the robbery or the takeaway by – in the UK, it's a little over 9,033 pounds. That translates to a bit over 15 grand. So that that feels like a valuable contribution, but we have to keep in mind the per-person haul diminishes with every new member added to the gang and, of course, the likelihood of something going wrong, someone squealing, mm-hmm. someone making a rookie mistake, that rises exponentially. Oh, yeah, but it definitely gets into that thing where if you have – but if you have a crew like we were talking about in the beginning of mm-hmm. people who are managing things, who have a specific task, who are going to go in and get the money and take the money and do all that, you can see it working in there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So how does this work out? If any of our fellow listeners were professional bank robbers, what would they have to do to, to make it a, a genuine living, right? To not have to – constantly be hungry, homeless, etc., just to meet their basic needs. Oh, yeah. So let's look at just in the United States, the poverty line mm-hmm. and where these how these numbers match up. So in 2013, the uh, the poverty threshold, at least, would be an annual income of $11,490 per person. So for one single person, um, $11,500 a year. That'd be your income, right? And this means that on average, if you were just a a professional bank robber, just all by your lonesome, you'd have to rob three banks a year and you'd have to keep all the loot and not do anything with it necessarily. Or at least, uh, I don't know, you'd have to invest smartly or or launder it correctly and smartly 
just to stay out of the, uh, the, the poorhouse, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And the most recent number we could find for the poverty threshold is from 2016, yeah, $12,486. So that still hasn't moved very much, but l- making a living as a bank robber has become increasingly difficult. Yeah, but hey, think about it this way. That's only three, maybe four jobs a year, and that's it. That's all you got to do. I imagine there's a lot of pre-production that goes into that. Maybe. <laughs> or, or who knows? Maybe there's – yeah, maybe there, there are just some people who impulsively rob banks and keep getting away. There are so many stories of daring, ambitious heist, not just related to banks – Um, Banks we tend to have more information about because they're one of the most common forms of this this sort of crime. But here's the thing. Not all heists are created equal. Some heist crews didn't just conspire to, you know, rob a vault at a bank. They conspired to move massive, gargantuan amounts of loot, some things that are – objectively priceless works of art that cannot have a value assigned and so on. And the most bizarre thing about it is some of these crews got away. So let's let's explore this. Let's look at some of the world's biggest heist. Let's look at some of the folks who were caught. And let's look at some of the folks who are still out there today. And we'll do that right after a word from our sponsor. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring with access to over 6 million active hourly workers. Snag a job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, tempt to hire part time or full time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing 
implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. So tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Here's where it gets crazy. Matt, what do you say? Do you want to do you want to start off with some heist where the perpetrators were ultimately apprehended? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And let's okay, let's let's first jump to September 12th, 1997. This is a story about a bank robbery um, that feels like several major motion pictures that I have seen or at least heard about. Um, the the target, or let's, let's say the title of it is the Dunbar Armored Robbery. That's mm-hmm. like what we're going to call it here. And the target was Dunbar Armored Incorporated. Mm-hmm. And they are an armored truck company. So what they do is they move cash and valuables from one place to another in a vehicle that is generally, you know, has a crew of people who are there to protect the money uh, and they're all armed. Uh, It seems like an extremely dangerous thing to attempt to rob, at least on the surface, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, in Los Angeles, California, a group of people, including a man named Alan Pace III, uh, got together and conspired to rob uh, the Dunbar Armored Inc. company. So instead of robbing a single one of these cars, they went to the source of where the 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 cars go back to, the depot basically, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and this guy, Alan Pace III, was working at Dunbar and he knew the ins and outs of the place. It was in fact an inside job and he had a crew of people that came that came with him they tied up some security guards. They made off with a whole bunch of money, and they also destroyed all of the security tapes. They didn't. They didn't destroy the cameras or anything. They they took the the actual tapes, so there was no real evidence. And it's kind of a weird thing because for a long time they they couldn't figure out exactly what happened, but they realized it must have been an inside job because somebody knew entirely too much about the security, where the cameras were, how those cameras uh, were recording and where that stuff would be and how much money would be where at mm-hmm. what time. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, it's a really fascinating thing to look at. It's also, I believe still the largest cash robbery to have occurred in the U.S., right? Uh, I think I think it's been estimated to be that because it was around eighteen. It was around nineteen million dollars in cash in nineteen ninety seven, which would make it closer to thirty million dollars today. Yeah, this story is amazing, but it doesn't end happily for Mister Pace. 
Oh no, no, no. He, he, he got caught as well as several other people. Um, Alan Pace III was considered the mastermind, you know, if we're going to use those terms. Uh, he was the guy who came up with the idea because he was the inside man. He knew the ins and outs. Uh, but he also had some people working with him like Eric Damon Boyd, one of the accomplices. Um, there, were, there were several people working with him that ended up going to jail and getting, uh, getting arrested and, you know, going to trial and mm-hmm. – Ended up in the slammer. Yeah, Eugene Lamar Hill, I think, was mm-hmm. the was the weak link there, or at least yes. the first to slip up. Is Lamar Hill the guy that was was trying to? He got caught with the sequential bills with the original rapper and everything. Yeah, 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 yeah. That yeah. tells you how much this stack of money is worth. That's the thing because this this gang attempted to be a pretty smart and pretty strategic about how they would seem to legitimately have created such wealth. They were buying real estate, and I believe they were also starting uh, business fronts, you know? Yeah. Right, like a a P.O. Box Corporation or LLC, stuff like that. But Eugene was talking to a real estate broker and – he, I guess he felt too comfortable or he, he got a little lax and he literally handed this guy that stack of bills, like you said, that could have just come from an armored truck. And his associate, he's often referred to as Hill's friend – but I would say maybe acquaintance is a better term Hmm. because his real estate buddy notices this strap of cash and he goes immediately to the police. And once Eugene Lamar Hill is arrested, he confesses and he names all the members of the crew. Well, yeah, and they also connected Hill up to this U-Haul that the crew had rented because they were bringing that in to load all of the cash into this U-Haul. And it was Hill who actually had rented it. And then I think there was a broken taillight or something Mm -hmm. that was found on the scene of the robbery. They connected that up to that specific U-Haul. They found Hill. Like they connected all those pieces together and that's how they get most of the rest of the crew with that confession. So justice is served mostly. Unfortunately, the law enforcement agents were not able to recover all of the money, some of which remains missing today. Yeah, they only recovered about $5 million of that, you know, at the time was $19 million. Mm-hmm. So you know that a lot of that just went into stuff, those, uh, those front companies and the real estate and all that other stuff. But they probably were able to get back some of that real estate because you could actually tie it to the being used uh, by that money. Really, really cool case. I mean, it's me- it's messed up. Those guys saw justice uh, or experienced justice, mm-hmm. are experiencing it. Um, but again, I think a pretty good example of one of these highly coordinated events. Yeah, and that's this is fascinating to me because these people went to prison, right? Yeah. But how how does a person feel? If they are in prison for a crime they definitely committed and they know that they will not only get out at some point, but they also know 
the money that they stole is somewhere and it, they may be able to access it. It's got to be pretty intense, you know. We're going to get into a similar thing to that a little bit later in the episode where you just you buy, you're biding your time in jail because you know where the rest of it is. Mm-hmm. Let's go across the pond for the next one, the Securitas Depot heist. Yes. Okay, so this one jumps us forward to February 21st, 2006. This time we're we're in Kent, uh, southeast of London if you're looking at a map. Um and Securitas just like the the old uh Dunbar group, they are guess what? transferring tons of money and valuables in armored cars. And this time we're at a Securitas Depot instead of a Dunbar Depot. Mm -hmm. Same, very, very similar kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And this one went down similarly with a couple of twists. The first big twist is that these guys realized that uh, in order to be successful, they were going to need some leverage. They went to the home of Colin Dixon, who was the manager of this depot, and uh, he and his family were kidnapped at gunpoint, and a crew or at least one or two people stayed behind with that family while Colin uh, basically brought all of these robbers, these this crew of people, to the depot, let them in. Those guys then essentially kidnapped all of the workers who were at the depot, and um, they tied them all up. And they took just giant, basically cages and pallets of cash and valuables. They loaded them onto a giant truck and uh, took off. And they ended up making making away with 53 million British pounds. Which makes this the largest cash robbery in UK history. Again, this is, this is ruthless work. But they do end up getting caught. Right. Uh, they, it, it, I do want to stay just for a second on their process here. Yeah. Because the way that they got Colin Dixon was pretty devious. Yeah. They impersonated police officers. Yeah. They pulled him over. Mm-hmm. And he was basically like, okay, well, this is fine. I'm going to work all this stuff out. And then they said, well, sir, we need you to get out of your car. Mm-hmm. They took him to the back of the car, basically locked him in the back of the car. And then it asked him a bunch of questions that police officers generally wouldn't ask, and they put a gun in his face. So after the robbery, uh, Dixon and his family survive, thankfully. Uh, After the robbery, Securitas offers a reward of two million pounds. No real questions asked, just give us information that will lead to the arrest of these assailants. And... It, it works out because on February 23rd, like two days later, police ha- uh, have already arrested two people and charged them with conspiracy to commit robbery. But they're just people who were on the crew. Right. Right. Because some of the main people that were involved with this, or at least that were thought to be the masterminds, mm-hmm. had actually fled to Morocco uh, <laughs> smartly, I think, on, on their part there. But they they fled and they were – I believe they're described in several places as cage fighters or former cage fighters. There's a guy named Paul Allen and uh, another one named Lee Murray or Murray, M-U-R-R-A-Y. Um, 
So, so after these guys are arrested that you're talking about, Ben, mm-hmm. two guys, and then it ends up being five guys that get arrested. It's basically the whole crew, except for the masterminds and these guys in Morocco. Then uh, finally, Paul Allen gets extradited from Morocco. He gets charged, but he keeps telling everybody, well, no, it, I wasn't the mastermind. I was just doing what I was told. I was working for this guy, Lee Murrah or Murray. Mm-hmm. And Lee is already incarcerated in Morocco. So it's like, I guess he was kind of using Lee as the fall guy, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Because while they were in Morocco, they did a number of things, some of which were very clever, some of which are understandable, and some of which are, you know, sort of not thought through. They went on a spending spree, as as reported in The Guardian by Matthew Weaver and his associates, they went on a spending spree. They were making it rain in Morocco. They bought property. Mm-hmm. They bought jewelry, which is, you know, very, very popular. We'll we'll get to the loose diamonds. Don't worry. Yeah. Holds uh, its value. One of the sketchiest things people can have. Uh, they also bought illegal things like drugs. And this this is something smart that they did. They invested thousands of dollars or pounds rather in plastic surgery for their associates. I've always been curious about whether that kind of tactic works if someone is attempting to disappear. You know, we hear about despots having plastic surgery. Yeah. We hear about, you know, people in drug cartels getting plastic surgery. The thing thing about it is – not to quote Donald Rumsfeld directly, but it's it's an unknown unknown, right? If someone successfully has has used plastic surgery to evade the long arm of the law, we'll never know about it. Yeah. So maybe we only know about the people who got caught with a bad nose job or something. Yeah, you just got to look for all those tremendously rich people with lots and lots of work done. <laughs> Start asking questions. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> we may be conflating populations <laughs> yeah. there. Don't do that. So what what we see here is that they're they're caught because despite their best intentions, they went to a country that has an extradition treaty with the United Kingdom. And in our earlier conversations about pseudocide, we've we've learned, right, that the only way people can fake their death and profit from it or the only way people can commit a huge crime like this and survive without going to jail is essentially to relocate to someplace that does not extradite. Yeah, that's really the only way. And in the end, they recovered about 24 million – I think think 24 million pounds of the 50-something, 54. Yeah, I wonder what happened to that, right? Because what we see here, maybe it's a little bit misleading, folks, because in both of the heists we just talked about, the people got caught, but the money didn't get caught. Yeah, not necessarily. (laughs) It got moved around in the market. (laughs) Right. There we go. There we go. We have another example from the United Kingdom that has even higher stakes. Oh, this one we're going back before either of the previous two, back to 1987, July 12th. Great year for bank robberies. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This is in Knightsbridge, London. This is – or it's it's a part of London. It's in the UK. It's in the city, uh, Westminster, I believe. And 
The uh, the target here is a thing, a place called Knightsbridge Safe Deposit Center. So less of a bank, more of a giant repository of safety deposit boxes, a giant a collection of safety deposit boxes. And there was a small crew of people that went into there, including this gentleman named uh, Valerio uh, V I C C E I Vichay Vichay Vichay. I don't know how to say it. Um, but Valerio, let's call him. Uh, they walked in pretending like they were just going to get a safety deposit box. And as soon as they got into the secure area where the deposit boxes were, uh, they pulled out his crew, pulled out pistols, held everybody up. Then they put a closed, temporarily closed sign on the front of the safety deposit center. Then they invited a couple other people in who were part of their crew. Dressed as security guards. Yes. And they began basically just busting open all of these safety deposit boxes. And they got away with a ton of money, a huge amount of money. Right. Wasn't it around – 60 million pounds. It was over 60 million pounds, I believe. Yes. But again, that's not cash, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's valuables, mostly valuables, some cash, um, probably bonds and all these other things. Mm-hmm. But the safety deposit boxes were owned by millionaires in London, owned by famous people, by uh, sports, you know, they're just famous peoples of all ilk. Aristocrats, yes. old money, royalty, right? Uh, they forced open 114 boxes, I think, in, yes. what, around two hours? So they were in, in the room for a while. Yeah, but 114 boxes full of whatever it was. And uh, they were, yeah, thinking about 60 million British pounds. But then, okay, so these guys make off with all this. They are They are successful. With these past three, the robbery itself goes off pretty well. Right? Right. In all three of these. Like, right, right. They get in, they get the spoils, and then they leave. The problems are, given enough time, you have enough people involved, somebody slips up, and this is what occurred. There were several, several accomplices of Valerio who ended up getting caught. Yeah, yeah. And let's, let's spend a little bit of time on Valerio because he is – anomalous in the world of robberies. Remember we said earlier at the top that 80% are loners, Mm -hmm. 80% are first-time amateurs with this. Not your buddy Valerio. He came to England from Italy where he was already wanted on charges for something like 50 armed robberies. Yeah. So maybe not necessarily banks, but – this guy was no stranger to the hustle. No, he wasn't. And he also wasn't the kind of guy that liked to lay low after he's done a job or something and not spend a lot of money, not have a lot of visibility. Mm-hmm. He liked to be out there living, uh, as is described by several websites we looked at, lavishly. Mm-hmm. That's how he did his thing. Living la vida loca, yeah. Yeah, well, and then that leads him down a pathway because he ends up – Oh, where did he go? He skipped the country he, to uh, South America. He went to South America, right? After this large robbery. And he was doing really well, you know, spending a ton of money. He's got a ton of money now. But he ends up wanting to get a Ferrari, I think a Testarossa, I believe that's mm-hmm. what it was. And 
he goes back to the United Kingdom, just temporarily flies back over there just to oversee the shipping of this Ferrari back to where he's living in South America. And the authorities, of course, somehow notice that he's there. You can only assume he's using a passport that's not his. Well, here's the thing. He was not aware that he was already directly tied to this crime because of a single fingerprint, a bloody fingerprint. Oh, wow. That belonged to him that was found on the scene. Uh, Also, I know we just mentioned blood, but we should say no one was killed, right? Oh, yes, yes. In the course of this, right? So so he goes (laughs) – this guy is such a pill. He he goes back to England, as you said, to get his Testarossa shipped to South America. Not the smartest move. And people who saw him thought he was not an impressive person. They thought he was a show-off. Uh, they thought he was flexing too hard. Like he wanted people to see his Rolex hmm. and he wanted to talk about uh, how uh, his love of uh, exotic cars – he was doing his best to not blend in. So the cops set up a roadblock. That's how they get him. They literally know where he's coming from and where he's going. They set up a roadblock. They take him out of his car. Yeah, because they smash the windshield of his Ferrari, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Which I think was sort of them proving a point. You know, that's yeah. their version of showing off their Rolex. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And he is sentenced to 22 years in prison. But he ends up, I believe, being extradited to Italy. Yeah, he goes back to Italy after um, after a little bit of jail time, ends up spending a, more jail time in Italy. But he ends up in this thing that's called a day prison or he's got like day privileges while he's at pr- prison. Mm-hmm. So he can actually leave for a certain amount of time. He's got a company that he's running and – he ends up getting into some dastardly stuff again. He – I think he's he's spotted by like a patrol vehicle or something, just kind of your standard police uh, patrol vehicle in Italy. Mm-hmm. And he's doing something weird. He ends up getting in a shootout with an officer and dying. Right. So let's, let's connect some dots here mm-hmm. because he's in a shootout, which means he has a firearm in Italy – while he is technically in prison, right, I think he, he's released, as you said, during the day and he has to be back in his cell at 1030 or something mm-hmm. like that. And he's acting suspiciously, quote unquote, acting suspiciously. What does that mean? You know what I mean? In, in this country, there are a lot of innocent people who have been fatally shot for, quote unquote, acting suspiciously. In this guy's case – I got to say, I believe law enforcement. Well, yeah, it appears that he may have been waiting for literally an armored truck. uh, Or, (laughs) I mean, again, there are some rumors that I was reading about on there, but who knows? Yeah. In the end of this huge heist, the 60 million pounds worth of stuff, Mm -hmm. uh, authorities got 10 million or they recovered roughly 10 million pounds worth of stuff and valuables. But the rest of it was either spent or can't be found. Um, So there you go. Uh, kind of the same ending there. Yeah, yeah. He also he he wasn't a good person. Any loss of human life is a tragedy. I don't want to make light of the fact 
that this that this guy died, he was also by acting suspiciously in his case, he was sitting in a stolen car. That's what it was. While he was waiting for the van. I would say that is suspicious. Yeah. I would like just because a person is in a stolen car does not necessarily mean they stole it, but it doesn't look good. <laughs> yeah, you should at least check it out. And if they have a weapon and they, you know, fire shots at you as a police officer, I, I think that's how things are going to go. There was a quote from his time in court when he was originally sentenced for the Knightsbridge robbery. I, I just want to see what you what you think about this. I want to hear your reaction to this. So one detective said this guy wanted to be known as the mastermind of the world's biggest robbery and then continued to say he had an ego the size of the old Bailey. And then at the trial, at the trial, this dude says to the judge, maybe I'm a romantic lunatic, but money was the last thing on my mind, you know, which is a very strange way to plead your case, it's like, look, I just... It's just the excitement. Yeah, it's not about the money. It's Yolo. about sending a message. Yolo, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yolo sent a message. Well, yeah, I mean, he, this is the kind of guy who watched... He reportedly watched Scarface almost 60 times. And that was just his favorite movie, and he wanted to be Scarface. And he had a ring or something that... Yeah, he had a, uh, a key ring that was golden, and it was a shotgun. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, let, let, I'm, I'm done talking about this Valerio guy. Um, <laughs> right. let's, let's take a quick break from our sponsor, and we'll come back and talk about some of the heists that went really well for the people who, who perpetrated them, or at least it didn't go well for the authorities chasing down the perpetrators. Snag a job is where America goes to hire, with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. 
When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. So tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. And we're back. Let's talk about some of the heists where the perpetrators got away. Asterisk, asterisk, caveat, etc. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> at all. Uh, so just to be clear about this kind of situation we're talking about, there are quite a few. A, a surprisingly vast number of enormous cases. I don't necessarily want to call them heist cases where we know money disappeared and we know where it was last seen, but we don't know what happened to it. The, the breadcrumb trail has disappeared, right? So we can laundry list some of those, but some of them deserve their own episodes. We decided to start with a couple of cases where we do know the nuts and bolts of the crew, and we know a little bit of about how it worked. Yeah, we at least know the best assumptions, according to authorities, about uh, – perhaps the groups that were involved here. So let's jump to January 20th, 1976, and let's go to Lebanon, specifically Beirut. And there's, let's see, the target here is the British Bank of the Middle East in Beirut. And what occurred here on this day is it's believed that uh, some crew of people, an officially unknown crew, of about eight soldiers, as well as a separate team of individuals who were safe crackers, they they gained access to the vault of this bank, the British Bank of the Middle East in Beirut, and they were able to empty the entire contents of that vault. And it's estimated to be somewhere between 20 million U.S. and 50 million U.S. worth of gold bars, Lebanese and other foreign currencies, as well as stocks, uh, jewels, and other valuables. And that money was worth about 60 million 
somewhere between 60 million to 150 million in 2010. So a really big takeaway. Yeah, and this also touches on something that I think we we were all somewhat anticipating when we talk about successful heist, like 100% successful heist. There was a state actor involved. These weren't just some random amateurs. They were a group associated with the PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization, under Yasser Arafat. Because at the time, Lebanon is in the grips of a civil war, exactly, they're able to break into this otherwise fairly fortified bank, right? Yeah, while all the chaos is going on, while there's so much confusion and violence occurring, they were just able to use that opportunity essentially as cover mm-hmm. to go in and take this place. Yeah, and no one, not only has no one involved in this heist been caught, no one has been charged with the crime. You know what I mean? This is not this is not a situation where someone decides to uh, skedaddle off to a country that won't extradite. Instead, they disappear. They pull a Kaiser Sose. Yeah. Uh, just to give you an idea of what it looks like, you're – if you think about it this way, there are people with large, high-powered rifles that have grenade launchers attached to them that are wearing military fatigues that are unmarked. So it's not saying that you're officially associated with any military. Mm-hmm. They they roll up with their grenade launchers and um, it's, it's pretty crazy the way they did this. I mean, and that must have been a very oppo- like opposing force just to see it coming, you know. Um, I don't know. It's just very, very strange because, again, it became a war zone there at that bank. It wasn't like they just walked in and took the money. There was firing. You know, there was weapons being fired and assuming grenades being launched. It's a pretty intense thing. Absolutely. And this loot was not just cash, right? We're talking gold, jewelry, stocks. And oddly enough, these guys ended up famous and anonymous because – the Guinness Book of World Records was inspired to cite this as the, quote, biggest bank robbery in the world. The crazy thing about this is that it is quite possible someone listening to this episode today, along with you, may have been involved. They would be elderly now, right? Mm -hmm. Or maybe they would be um, a family member like a sibling or a child of one of the, what should we call them? Well, we should call them criminals, but I like heisters. Yeah. And let's remember that part. To me, the most crucial part about this is that they were very likely involved with a state actor. Yeah, they used used C4, the plastic explosive, to gain access to the vault, which, you know— it generally doesn't occur if you are a group of citizens. Um, getting your hands on C4, while it may not be as difficult as the world's authorities would like it to be, but it is certainly not easy. No, no. It's not something uh, – it, it, ideally, it's not something we want people to be able to order from Amazon or eBay. Yeah, and you know, grenade launchers attached to your M16s. Yeah, that's military hardware. Mm -hmm. So let's fast forward to 2004, a few days before Christmas. 
here we are in uh, jolly old Ireland. Yes, to Belfast. Uh, so let's just let's talk about the target here. It's a place called Belfast Northern Bank. And uh, before we even get into who it is or what occurred or anything like that, let's just hit that number around 26 and a half million British pounds, as well as other additional cor- uh, uh, foreign currencies mm-hmm. were taken. Yeah. According to The Guardian, in total, as of 2008, 10 people have been arrested and three have been charged for being somehow involved with the conspiracy here. But they're all charged with being somehow involved. Well, but also they've never officially been like – Charged with actually doing yeah, it. Yeah, it's like it's hard to even wrap your head around the thing. They they were connected, right? But they weren't the people there doing the thing. Yeah, yeah. So the other currencies involved were U.S. dollars mm-hmm. and euros, right? Could we just talk about the significance of this yeah. robbery? The, mm-hmm. So we're in Belfast. Uh, there's a peace process going on because of the tensions, you know, in Northern Ireland. Uh, as well as other parts of Ireland, the NR, the uh, IRA and a couple other groups that were involved in tensions over the years. Again, similar to state actors. Yeah. So so you, there's a very – you're in a precarious position there already and then to have a violent act like this occur where millions and millions of dollars are stolen of all the people's money in the area. Mm-hmm. I mean that's people's money. That's not just the bank sitting there, although, you know, insurance through various uh, – state programs and everything, still, those, it's a symbolic act. Sure. That's that's the idea. And it, it almost crippled the ongoing peace process because there was a lot of finger pointing. The police of Northern Ireland, as well as the British and Irish governments, said that the IRA had a hand in this. However, the IRA said, no, why would we do that? What on earth are you talking about? That's the last thing we want. Yeah, exactly. Now, let's talk about a a little bit of what happened. So similarly to what we saw with one of the previous, the Securitas heist, Mm -hmm. some masked, what they're being referred to in The Guardian as um, masked gang, masked and armed gang members. These guys show up at two homes, uh, two separate homes of two separate bank managers there who work at the Northern Bank, right? And they hold people hostage, uh, specifically their families at gunpoint. Uh, Then they get moved around a little bit. They, you know, they take some of the family members to like a forest apparently. They're really spreading these people out. They're extremely organized on what they're going to do. Then they get one of these guys, one of these bank managers to go to work like it's just a regular old day, pretend nothing's wrong. uh, But he, because he knows that his family's at risk, right? But then when the banks close that evening... Uh, the bank, these gang members actually like were let in by mm-hmm. this manager, let into the vaults, and then they just loaded up a van with all of the contents. And got away. That's, yeah. that's the craziest thing. Again, the people who were arrested, the people who were charged were not charged with actually carrying this out. I believe currently as of 2019 – one person has been convicted. They were convicted of money laundering. Uh, 
Yeah, so after the fact, just using it. Right, and the authorities consider this case ongoing, so they haven't they haven't closed it. It remains unsolved. Again, w- given the time frame here, it's even more likely that someone involved is listening to this show now. Oh, yeah. When I say more likely, I still don't mean it's probable. Yes. But if you're listening— no, we can't even say that, Matt. <laughs> yeah. We can say someone might be listening, and that's about where we have to draw the line, I believe, legally. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah. And we, at this point, we do know a very small portion of this money that was stolen has been recovered. Mm-hmm. A very, very small portion. I think $2 million out of the um, two million out of the 60 in pounds, I guess, in banknotes were discovered. And then there's another like 100K in U.S. banknotes. And li- listen to this. Uh, according to The Guardian, uh, these U.S. banknotes were found in the toilet of the Police Athletics Association's New Forge Country Club. $100,000 of the money that was stolen there was found in the police country club. Interesting. So this this definitely has the um – this definitely has the aroma of an inside job. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, yeah. But the uh, I think the the authorities there, the official word was like, oh, no, this money was just planted there as a distraction. It wasn't actually, you know, nobody involved with the police had anything to do with that money. It was just put there. Okay. Sure. Wink. All right. Wink. Yeah. This – let's continue to build on this. Let's, let's look at just a, a few quick – laundry list okay, of, sure. of unsolved conspiracies. One thing that I believe stands out for a lot of U.S. residents and a lot of residents of the Middle East would be the massive allegations of stolen money in the course of the U.S.'s involvement in Iraq, in the course of the U.S.'s involvement in Afghanistan. Uh, so, if we if we look at this, what we find will be almost a thousand, almost a thousand cases of alleged fraud committed not not by you know not by local militias or terrorists, but committed by contractors working for Uncle Sam. As, as we know, you know, war is a war is very fertile soil for corruption, for profiteering. In this case, a U.S. audit found that the occupying force in in Iraq during the Iraq war lost track of something around like $9 billion with a B. Yeah, that's insane. And right there, by the way, remember, we're talking about several associations, several groups, but one of the main ones is our old pals Blackwater, a.k.a. XE, I think, a.k.a. Academi, which is uh, our old pals, Mm -hmm. Eric Prince. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a a fascinating article about this that we recommend called BBC Uncovers Lost Iraq Billions by a journalist named Jane Corbin. Mm. And this this came out in June of 2008. So this is old news. This is over 10 years old now, but it's fascinating to get to get this glimpse 
I, I just want to share some parts of this. So an investigation by the BBC found that not just $9 billion, that's the U.S. audit, mm-hmm. the BBC found $23 billion had been lost, stolen, or just maybe put in the wrong accounting line, which I thought was very generous of them to phrase it that way. Wow. Mm-hmm. Let me read this part to you. So the BBC used U.S. and Iraqi government sources to research how much some private contractors have profited from the conflict in Iraq and the subsequent rebuilding. A U.S. gagging order is preventing discussion of the allegations. What? The order applies to 70 court cases against some of the top U.S. companies. Whoa. That feels like a whole episode. Right? Yeah. That, I think we need to do that. I, I I agree. I agree completely. When Henry Waxman commented on this during his time as chairman of the U.S. House of Reps, he said, the money that's gone into waste, fraud, and abuse under these contracts is just so outrageous. He noted at the time that it may turn out to be the largest case of war profiteering in history, not in U.S. history. In human history. Holy crap. That's a little hyperbolic, if we're being yeah. honest. You know, it's it's tough to rank these things with accuracy when we're talking about just how much money goes missing. But we we have to admit, billions of dollars vanished. Yeah, they did. Oh, man, I, I'll never forget. Was it Rumsfeld who was like, yeah, well, we don't know, just billions of dollars that we can't account for. In the, in the budgets. But, you know, it speaks to the fog of war, like we're talking about the cover that you get when there's conflict like that. Because if we think about or if we take ourselves back to 2003 when the United States was invading Iraq again and I believe Saddam, at least the story goes, that Saddam Hussein ordered his son and a bunch of other men in trucks to go to one of the largest Baghdad banks Mm -hmm. and take out a billion dollars or as close to a billion dollars as he could to basically procure it and say, you know, we're about to be under attack. We're at war. We need to make sure this money isn't stolen by the opposing forces, right? Mm -hmm. But they in turn essentially stole a billion dollars out of the bank because it's – I don't know. It's just such an odd thing to think about it that way. And it makes you wonder how often that kind of thing occurs where monies that are accrued from all these various places but, you know, are thought to be the state's money mm-hmm. depending on when a conflict is occurring and how it's occurring. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. It makes, you, makes me wonder about Fort Knox a little bit. Right. Again, what we see here, the the clear trend is that the most successful heist – in terms of escaping arrest and in terms of escaping arrest with the money or with the loot, whatever that may be, uh, those successful heists tend to have state actors somehow involved. Those are the inside jobs that carry the most weight and the highest chance of success. In Afghanistan, we've got 
what, an estimated $45 billion that went missing. Uh, There's a report from the Fiscal Times in 2015 that talks about how this came to be. And the big question is whether these missing dollars vanished due to a purposeful intentional heist or whether it's just flawed accounting on the part of the Pentagon, which has for the entirety of most people's lives listening to this show, always had a problem with accounting. Always. It's so weird. Those black budgets, they just don't match up with the money that doesn't exist. Yeah, as of 2015, the Pentagon had data for about 57% of the almost 800 million that they spent on one program in this country between 2002 and 2013. Again, that's not the whole pie. It's just something called the Commander's Emergency Response Program. And this is something the Fiscal Times rightly criticizes because it's very difficult to see where the money – you can see where the money comes from, but you can't see where it goes. It is a black bag. It's, it's a black budget. It's, it's a mystery box, you know? And such is the nature of military conflicts, I guess. Yeah, well, here, just for a peek behind the curtain mm-hmm. without getting too into the weeds on it, under the emergency response program here, commanders could spend money to respond to uh, sudden catastrophes, immediate needs, you know, fires, floods, earthquakes, theoretically, that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And any money they spend under half a million dollars isn't treated as a defense contract and it doesn't have to bear up to the same scrutiny or documentation. So question, I don't know the answer to this, but question, how often or how rarely did someone request $499,000? Seriously, or just 450000 yeah, so. yeah. You don't want to be. You don't want to show off. You don't need the testarosa. <laughs> Man, that's uh, sounds like petty cash in a way, but up to you know a couple hundred grand. Wow, that's that's insane. Now, to be fair to Uncle Sam, at this at this point currently, uh, they have discontinued that ambiguous process, mm-hmm. that kind of workflow for accounting. But I, but I don't know. There's just so much money on the table there that it feels almost certain corruption must exist. Maybe it's mitigated. Maybe it's tamped down. But it has to be there. We have a lot of people listening today who are active or former military members, and I, I am certain that some of us have seen really dodgy things happen in the field, you know, really dodgy financial things. Yeah. And uh, why don't you go ahead and tell us what you think about all of this that we've discussed today, and especially if you've got personal experience that you would feel comfortable sharing um, as anonymously as you wish. Because we talked about a whole bunch of different things. I definitely want to cover at least a couple of these as full episodes. It feels like there's plenty of meat on those bones. And you know, we really just want to find out what you think about about all of this. 
So go ahead and find us on social media where we are Conspiracy Stuff in most places, Conspiracy Stuff Show on Instagram. Hang out with us on Facebook on our page Here's Where It Gets Crazy where you can discuss this with all your fellow conspiracy realists. Uh, What else? Uh, People can find you on Instagram, right? That's correct, Matt. You can find me at Ben Bolin on Instagram, at Ben Bolin HSW on Twitter. You can also call us if you don't feel like social media quite bags your badgers. We have a dedicated number just for you. That's 1-833-STDWYTK. Just leave a message. You get three minutes. Do what you got to do with it. You can leave as many as you want. So on behalf of our crew, thank you so much for joining us today. We do want to end on this final note. Please, please do not commit heist. You know, no, not you, once. You're Not once, not once, not never. Your chances of success are cartoonishly low, and the chances of someone dying, being injured, having their lives ruined – is incredibly offensively high. There are other ways, right? Mm-hmm. There, there are other ways to spend your time. And they will be maybe not – maybe they won't have the promise of being as financially rewarding, but you will feel much better about yourself. You know what I mean? Yes. Le- learn to play piano. There you go. <laughs> go Ben Folds with it. You'll you'll appreciate it, and everyone else will too. Yeah, that was his main thing was heist before. Exactly, <laughs> before and he was like, music. you know what? I like these ivories. If you don't care for phones, if you don't care for social media, but you have a story you wish to share, we would love to hear it. And we have good news. You can always send us a good old-fashioned email. We are conspiracy at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. 
Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.